Thanks. Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll look at verses 1 to 8. Next week, uh, we have a few weeks in a row where you have choices. Choices are good. So after we're done with the music worship portion of our service, uh, some of you might want to just get up, you will not offend me, and go into the 50-50 room, and Sam is going to preach on relationships and how to resolve broken relationships and conflict. He'll do it out of Colossians chapter 3. And of course, relationships are a huge part of all of our lives. Others of you perhaps will want to stay in here, and Andrew and I are going to interact a little bit on the end times. We'll do that together for a little while, and then uh, Andrew will exit, and I'll keep going. And while that's going on, uh, an artist is going to be creating uh, an image of what I'm talking about. In the end, it'll be a black-white image. So you got choices the next three weeks. That's your choice for next week. You don't have choices today, and I've entitled it The Unpleasant Sermon. (laughs) Just want you to know right off the bat. So let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for what Paul has written in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 to 8. Father, a challenging topic for both genders, for all time periods, whether in the first century, AD 50, in Thessalonica, or the 21st century here in Wausau. Father, guide our time and allow us to hear from you. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. In today's text, Paul begins in chapter 4, verse 1, with the word brothers. That happens to agree the Greek word adolphoi in the plural. And this particular word is not gender specific. There are a number of gender specific words in the Bible. So when you have a gender neutral Bible, you have a Bible that has violated a number of passages. But this is a gender-neutral word, this particular one. It doesn't mean male. It doesn't mean female. It means born-again person. And so what we have here is Paul writing in AD 51 to the church at Thessalonica. He's writing to born-again Christians, Christ followers, who are struggling in the area of purity. That's who he's writing to. So I personally am thankful that I don't pastor in AD 51 in Thessalonica. Instead, I pastor in pure Wausau with central Wisconsin values, with Christ followers who never struggle in the areas of morality, purity, and the like. That's Pollyanna, isn't it? Pollyanna is sticking our head in the sand. It's wishful thinking. It's not acknowledging the truth 
and the reality of where you and I live. I think of 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter says, be sober-minded and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And so we could hear today's message and read today's verses, and we could say to ourselves, well, that probably applies to someone else, but not to me. And if we do that, I think we deceive ourselves and we give Satan a foothold in our lives. Because today's message applies to all of us, it applies to anyone who lives in 21st century America. We live in an immoral land with immorality all around us, temptations all around us, some subtle, some not so much, but its pernicious nature affects all of us. I remember when I wrote this sermon, it was a couple months ago. I usually write a few months in advance. And it was a time period in which a very prevalent pastor, a father, a husband, a grandfather, a pastor of 40 years, was evaluated in the news quite roughly and perhaps quite deservedly. And we could think about this pastor and say, ha, not me. Or we could say, be alert, be steadfast. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Or James 4, 7, resists the devil and he will flee from you. First John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he, Satan, who is in the world. And we ask God daily to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we ask God for the fruit in Galatians 5, 23, the fruit of self-control, which is really God control working in and through us. And I think about that pastor And he made some unwise choices. And frankly, I would say his elders made some incredibly unwise choices. The congregation made some incredibly unwise choices. What we know is this. That particular pastor has been accused by about 10 different women, co-workers. What has he been accused of? Long, lingering hugs. Why? A stolen kiss. Why? One has accused him of physical adultery, and then that was recanted. Others have said that he would admire their sexy clothes and even encourage them to wear even more sexy clothes. And tell them how to do that. Where was someone to stop this? And he would invite people of the opposite gender to his home when his wife wasn't there. And one that I think is all over the elders, not ours. He would take international trips with one person of the opposite gender. Why? And then invite her 
into his hotel room to do business. How unguarded. And again, we could get high and mighty and say, that's ridiculous. And it is. Or we can say, be steadfast and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sexual sin is not a first century Thessalonian issue. In this church, I've been here almost 17 years now, I have counseled for bestiality, incest, rape, fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexual behavior. You name the sin and it would be included. This community, this community, us, our lives. And again, we could be quite high and mighty or we can say, be steadfast and alert. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And know, and know that if we don't constantly guard our lives, we are the target of the enemy. Let's look at what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how we ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. As you and I begin to talk about morality and immorality, I think there are two standards that we can consider. They're juxtaposed one to another. The first standard is the air we breathe. It's post-modernity. Post-modernity teaches that there is no absolute law giver. There are no absolutes. Culture dictates what is right and wrong. Therefore, if culture says it is right to live together prior to marriage, then go ahead and do it. If culture says that it is acceptable to not have a traditional husband-wife relationship, marriage, a monogamous marriage, then go ahead and do something else because that tradition is laughable. A postmodern world feels where the culture is and goes after the culture. It determines right and wrong based on the lyrics of songs, right and wrong based upon Hollywood starlets, 
or ties outside a door in a dorm room, or friends with benefits, or casual sex, or politicians' immoral lives splashed on the pages of news services. And a postmodern world says that what is right and wrong is what our culture accepts as right and wrong, and those accepted boundaries change depending on culture, depending on time, and sometimes even depending on gender. The Bible 100% rejects that form of morality. 100%. The other way to evaluate morality is to believe that there is a lawgiver, a creator, a benevolent God who is not a curmudgeon, but truly a benevolent God who makes laws that we might live in them, that we might walk in them in such a way that they're for our best interests, they're for his glory, they're for the betterment of humanity. Paul writes in verse 1, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Notice what he says. If you want to please God... You will walk in God's commands. And you are to do so more and more. In other words, you are to take the next step in your relationship. I'm to take the next step in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is a one-to-one correspondence between pleasing God and walking in his commandments. We all fail. We all fail miserably. And we fall upon the grace of God. But we pick ourselves up and we ask God, to help us to take the next step and the next step and the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we do not agree that God's laws are binding to us, then verse 8 applies to us. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And the Holy Spirit empowers. So we have to choose which of the two alternatives we're going to live by. Are we going to live in the air we breathe, a postmodern world in which morality is determined by culture, or are we going to accept that we have a benevolent God, a lawgiver, a creator, who set up commands for us to walk in for our benefit and his glory? This is not a new choice. This is the choice that Joshua faced. And listen to what Joshua wrote in Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river, that's the Canaanites, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. What Joshua is saying is this. If you believe that morality is postmodern, and he's writing like 3,300 years ago. If you believe that morality is postmodern and determined by the Amorites and the Canaanites, choose them. But if you believe that morality is determined by God, then choose God and choose his word. That's what he's saying 
to us. The first step in determining morality is to determine who the lawgiver is. Is it God or is it culture and society? In choosing God, verse 3 is both broad and precise. It says, abstain from sexual immorality. Now we might ask this question, why? Why is God such a killjoy? Why is he such a curmudgeon? Abstain from immorality. It doesn't seem very fair. And yet God tells us in his word, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. In other words, there's something about sexual sin that is even more damaging to us. Our world tells us that intimacy is only physical. Scripture tells us it's spiritual, it's psychological, it's emotional. And that when we go outside the bounds of morality as God defines it, we do damage to ourselves. We hurt ourselves. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a man commits is outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against himself, herself. I think of Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey of the rest of the story fame. My dad was a big fan. And so I remember this product, J.B. Weld, because my dad bought it. If you know anything about J.B. Weld, it was two tubes, two tubes of stuff. Nobody knows what is in it. It's just stuff. And so you take a tube and you would squeeze it out and you take another tube and you'd squeeze it out and you'd have a little space between them. And let's suppose you use the stuff in tube A to glue something together, it would be worthless. Or you use the stuff in tube B to glue something together, it would be totally worthless. But if you mix the stuff in tube A and tube B and you mixed it together, there was a chemical reaction that occurred that's unexplainable and suddenly this stuff stuck together really well. That's what sexual intimacy does. That's exactly what sexual intimacy does. And that's why we read, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two should become one flesh. The man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. That is why we read over and over again, the two become one flesh. God is all about marriage. He is all about singleness for those who are called to singleness. He's all about marriage for those who are called to marriage. He loves both. But in marriage, he wants it to be monogamous between a husband and wife for a lifetime. That's his intent. So he says in Malachi 2, I, the Lord, hateth divorce. Let a man not cover himself with violence. Because if you've been through a divorce, or you know somebody who's been through a divorce, you know that it is a violent act. And he wants to spare us from that kind of violence. And yet in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, twice Jesus permissively allows divorce when marital oneness is broken. And how is marital oneness broken? When someone steps outside the marriage 
and have a physical adulterous relationship with someone else. And that oneness is broken, and God says, I permissively, I don't command, I permissively allow divorce. Why? Because a new oneness has been created, and the old oneness has been shattered. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Think about that phrase, the two will become one flesh. Where do you read that in Scripture? Over and over and over again, you read it in marriage. And yet that same oneness occurs when someone walks outside the marriage and joins himself to another, even a prostitute, whether they intend it or not, a oneness occurs. And because of that, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 19, I permissively allow divorce if that has occurred in one's life. Sexual sin results in a pain that leaves deep scars. I've counseled with lots of people in the quarter century I've been pastoring. People who are quite beyond the sexual sin and yet they're still suffering the repercussions, whether STIs or an unplanned pregnancy or the shame or the brokenness or a divorce or the like. And thankfully we have a God that though he doesn't promise to remove all the consequences, he does promise to remove the stain. He promises to cleanse. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our sin from us. That's the kind of great God you and I serve. As you and I talk about intimacy, I think it would not be complete. Not that I'm getting close to ending my sermon. Don't take it that way. But it would not be complete if we didn't talk about the positive side of intimacy. You see, God is hardly some old curmudgeon that wants to rob us of joy. The first being to have a sexual thought was God, and he created it as good and right and moral and something beautiful within a marriage relationship. And so we read all sorts of passages like Hebrews 13, the fourth verse, it says this, let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Listen to Proverbs 5, 18 to 20. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Did I just read that out loud in church? Man, we got to find a a church that doesn't talk dirty. (laughs) Except it's the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God values intimacy in marriage. He's not a curmudgeon. He's the first being to have a sexual thought. And he created as good and right and beautiful in a husband-wife relationship. What God stands against is the violation of that. And therefore, he says in verse 3, flee from sexual immorality. He adds in verse 4, let each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For an unpleasant moment, as if the rest wasn't already unpleasant enough, I want to talk about pornography. And when I talk about pornography, I want you to know that preparing for this, I read 15 scholastic articles, uh, not all by Christians, but they were all very published in the latest journals. And as I read them, they were all from 2015 to 2018, so they're the latest on this issue. And as I thought about it, I thought of a young girl, a woman, really. She was in my office not that long ago. And she said, you know, all my single friends, guy friends, struggle with pornography. I wish they didn't, but it's not that big a deal. At least it's not doing any damage. I'll tell you that it's 15 for 15 articles that would disagree. It's doing a lot of damage. You see, we have neurotransmitters, neurochemicals in our brain, one of which is dopamine. And when we see these artificial pictures, it releases dopamine, which gives us a sense of euphoria. And we have a desire for that euphoria over and over and over again. But there's a problem. It's called sensitization which means that when we become addicted to something, there are triggers, sensitizers, that call us back to that. If one is an alcoholic and one walks right by one's favorite bar, that's a trigger. And we are sensitized to that position. And it's as though the bar is saying, come on in. Or we see a drink that is one of our favorite, and the drink is saying, you can have just one, you can do it. Well, dopamine leads to euphoria, which leads to sensitization. The sensitization for someone who's addicted to porn might be a computer. It might be being alone. It might be seeing someone who is dressed in a provocative way and it causes a desire for that euphoria of dopamine. But we have still a third thing. It's called the tolerance effect. And the tolerance effect teaches this. That once what led to that euphoria of dopamine now just brings this level of joy. This level of euphoria because it's no longer exciting. It's a digital picture. We've seen it before. We've become used to it and it's not enough. And that leads to deeper and deeper in the pornography fields. Harder, more bizarre, more dangerous, sometimes illegal things that we now go after in order to get that 
euphoria, that dopamine effect of joy in our life. Let me read from Dr. Zimbardo, Wilson, and Cologne. Uh, this, their article is, How Porn is Messing with Your Manhood. If an image or sin is no longer stimulating enough for today's porn users, they will look for variety, surprise factor in the content, more hardcore and stranger material, anything they haven't seen in order to attain a sexual climax. One result is that some brains on porn are being digitally rewired in a totally new way to demand change, excitement, and constant stimulation. Each dose of dopamine is a brain training experience. And that's what the majority of those 15 articles I read from 2015 to 2018, secular and sacred, said we rewire our brain and we become addicted to the euphoria. We become sensitized to certain stimuli. And then we become tolerant and we need a little bit more and a little bit more to reach that sense of euphoria. I have a friend who was a professional counselor in a field in which he dealt with sex offenders. So these are individuals who have gotten in trouble with the law and as part of uh, their imprisonment, they would have to uh, interact with my friend. And over the years, he had 110 clients, 110. And I asked him this question. Out of the 110, how many of them had pornography? And his answer was 110 had pornography as part of their abuse cycle. 110 out of 110. Perfect correlation. And this is a pretty reputable individual. There is scientific evidence that we rewire our brains, especially adolescents, but even those who are senior saints, we rewire our brains in highly unfavorable ways. And when I read these articles, this is what it told me it does to us. It lowers our ability to work. We didn't expect that. But we will be poor employees even if we avoid pornography because we have rewired our brain in such a way that we don't concentrate like we once did. It will lead to the objectification of the opposite or the same gender. We would expect that. Uh, it makes paths to sex crimes easier, not certainly guaranteed, but it makes it easier. Uh, it hurts marital intimacy and can result in an inability to have marital intimacy. It leads to depression, discouragement, despondency, and the like. Those are some of the effects that are caused when we become addicted to pictures, fantasy, on pages or the internet or the like. No wonder our benevolent, not curmudgeon God says abstain from sexual immorality. Control one's body, verse 4. Don't live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, verse 6. Or verse 7 reminds us that God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So how do we conclude such an unpleasant sermon? Man, am I glad I'm not greeting any of you. I'm going right to Marathon. 
and you think it was hard to greet you, man, I couldn't get, wait to get out of the traditions. They're all older than me. <laughs> yeah, think about saying this sermon in front of them. First, God is not a curmudgeon. God created intimacy as good and right and holy. It's a right relationship that he wants us to experience intimacy in, a husband-wife monogamous relationship. I think of the most graphic passage in the Bible, which is Song of Solomon chapter 4. Don't go there yet. You can do it later on. Song of Solomon chapter 4 is the most graphic passage in the Bible. And chapter 5 verse 1 is a terrible chapter break. It belongs at the end of that. And if you look at my ESV, the editor is read, others, as though others say this. It doesn't even make sense. How would others have anything to do with what has happened in a bedroom in chapter 4? What do you mean others? It's got to be the worst editor comment I've ever read. And editor comments are not inspired. The comment is God. And God says, eat, drink, and drink deeply, lovers. So the most graphic passage in the entire Bible is followed by God saying, this is good. This is right. This should be what a marriage relationship is. But intimacy is only in a marriage relationship. Second, if one is involved in pornography, know this, it is highly destructive. And that young woman in my office was wrong. It does have lots of negative effects. You'll notice in your bulletin that there is a sheet with a lot of suggestions, some websites. I think Pastor Isaiah is putting together some kind of Bible study. Not for those who are addicted to pornography. I could include that. But just for any man who wants to be strong in morality. So it's not, uh, if you join it, we know what you're like. It's not that at all. It's just a group for men who want to be strong in the area of purity. Talk to Pastor Isaiah about it. Sometimes, more often than not, in sin areas like pornography, which is a shame sin, we need others in our lives. We need accountability. We need somebody to ask us how we're doing or to send us a verse of Scripture or to call us to ask the hard question. That's what we need. And so that's what you need to find. And there's some starters in that sheet. There's a Bible study. You might have friends. If you don't, you call uh, the pastors and we will hook you up with someone. Or we can serve in that capacity as well. We need one another. Remember there, we need to be steadfast and alert. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Third, pornography is especially dangerous. Especially dangerous to those under the age of 25. Especially dangerous. It's dangerous for everyone. But if you're under the age of 25 and you need help, you go talk to Pastor Jared or you talk to one of the other pastors or you talk to your parents, you get help. It's especially dangerous. And if you're a father or a grandfather and you have some kind of stash, it is not manly 
to share that with somebody else. It is not manly. You're not making a man of the next generation. You're making a mess that will end up in my office. And we don't need that. I can't even tell you how many younger people started in pornography because of a father or a grandfather. But it's a lot. Get rid of the stash. But even if you can't, don't you ever share it with someone else. That is pernicious. That's evil. Sorry. Finally, there's forgiveness for all of us in every area of our life, in any sin area which differs from person to person when we ask God to cleanse us. There is forgiveness. That's the kind of God we serve. He doesn't always promise to remove the consequences, but he always promises to remove the stain of sin. So Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That sounds good, blotted out. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sin be as scarlet, it be made white as snow. Though it be as crimson, it be made like wool. That's the kind of God you and I serve. Let's pray. Father God, uh, a hard passage, a difficult one for all of us, and one that is needed for all of us. And Father, may we not get all high and mighty and think, well, that's not about me because it's about all of us. And we all have been tempted, we all have struggled in an immoral world, and we all need constant victory. Give us the breastplate of righteousness. Give us the fruit of self or God control. And for those who struggle, we pray that you would give accountability, sisters and brothers, and that we would stand against the wiles of Satan, that we would resist the devil, that he might flee. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.